Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. We have breaking news this morning. The Association of Pennsylvania State College and University Faculties Union, representing more than 5,000 professors and coaches at Pennsylvania's 14 state-owned universities, went on strike this morning. About 105,000 students are affected. Negotiations have been ongoing for months, and union members have been working without a contract since last year. Joining us on the line right now is uh, Ken Mash, who is president of the Association of Pennsylvania State College and University Faculties, or AFSCUF. Mr. Mash, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Are you uh, on the picket line right now? I am not on the picket line right now. I was on very early this morning. I try to get back home to have a little bit of a rest before I go back out again. Uh, we were at the negotiations all evening, all, all night long and into the morning. All right. So, Ken, let's we'll talk about some of the issues that are holding up an agreement. But what was the final straw? You have been negotiating uh, straight through for some time now uh, here in the last couple of weeks. But uh, what was the final straw? Why couldn't you come to an agreement? Well, you know, we this this negotiation started two years ago uh, and we've been working on it. our contract expired um, in, you know, in May and June a year ago. Uh, so we've been working at this for a long, long time, but the system just seemed to be, have been dragging its feet. That's the reason why you go ahead and you do something like set a strike date so that you can get there to be some action on the part of someone like the state system. So, you know, we, the state system, when they finally did put proposals on the table, they came after quality of education. Uh, they did want to increase temporary faculty instead of having permanent faculty for our students. They wanted to encourage more online courses, even to the extent where they may be forcing students to take distance education online courses rather than taking courses, uh, you know, on the campus in the classroom with other students. Uh, they, you know, they wanted to do away with professional development money. They wanted to increase in the, uh, uh, the, they wanted to use graduate students to teach in the first year. So, you know, we, we spent a long time fighting off these issues uh, with regard to quality. And then they went after our adjunct faculty members. And they wanted to cut their salaries by 20%. And we managed to fight that off, too. Um, and each time that we were fighting off these things, we were saying, okay, we'll take less money than other state workers do. Okay, we will take more uh, uh, limitations on our health care. Okay, we will pay more for our health care all along the way. When we got right down to it, you know, we offered them a wage package that was really much smaller than any other state employee, really by a factor of $31 million. Uh, You know, we, in essence, uh, offered them a package that could save them $50 million dollars the years, and they said that's not good enough. Um, at some point, you're going to be giving back more than you're going to be getting in wages, and so you know. But we, but nevertheless, we didn't walk away from the table. We were there. Uh, we put that proposal on the table. Uh, we were approached finally after a long period of time by the state system, who handed us what they said was their uh, last and final offer. And a last and final offer means, in essence, take this or go on strike. And since the thing that they handed us reverted back and, and undid things that we had already agreed to during the course of these negotiations, they set it up so that there was no way that we were going to take that offer. So, 
you know, in essence, they said, go on strike. And they did that at 8.30 in the evening. And they said they were done talking. I mean, we sat there, we waited. We tried even again to go through some back channels with people to try and get another offer on the table to start things up. And we didn't even get a phone call from them. Now, you listed, Ken, you listed uh, several issues. There has been some give and take in negotiations. Uh, It's been reported this morning that the issue that really you could not agree on was faculty members, union members paying more for their health insurance. Is that accurate? Well, that's that is, of course, that uh, we're talking about health insurance and we're talking about wages. But understand that we had done what most Americans have done with their health care. We put an offer on the table that would have included deductibles, which would have raised the amount of premium share that we were paying, would have, you know, we would have had to contribute more for our drugs, just like everybody else is. And we agreed to also not take wage increases. Um, like the other unions had gotten for a year so that we could maintain quality education for our students. And still, the, the chancellor of the state system, Frank Brogan, said that he wanted more. And he, not only did he want more, he wanted us to abandon our uh, future employees. He wanted us to, in other ways, abandon our retired employees. He wanted us to sell out our members. And when, you're, when someone's asking you, to sell out one group of your members or another group of your members or another group of your members, what they're really trying to do is say, we want to try and break your union. And, you know, sooner or later, you have to stand up for yourself. And I think our members appreciate our union. They know that we stand up for students, we stand up for them, and that we'll continue to do that. And I think what you've seen this morning is an incredible show of support by our faculty, And you've also seen them get tremendous amount of support from the students. But I tell you, I think this is a very sad day. Well, Ken, let me let's talk about the students. Uh, There are about one hundred five thousand students who uh, are impacted by this. Um, What do you say to them? I mean, we know that uh, there are some students who are very concerned about, you know, where this goes, especially the seniors who are wondering, well, does this mean that we have to go to school longer? Does this delay us getting into our careers? What do you say to those students? Well, I'll tell you what I said to one student, who's my daughter, who's at one of our universities. And she was nervous about what was going to be happening, too, to her. But we had to talk about it. And, we, you know, when I spoke about it, and I said, you know, it's not just about you. It's also about other students who come after you, about preserving quality of education. It's about, do you want to actually be going to a university that seeks to exploit adjunct faculty and perhaps even put them down below the poverty line? or to, to, to pay 60% of our adjunct faculty members are, are female. And they wanted, even in their latest of offers, to treat them differently. So that's an issue of pay equity. And um, I didn't have to say that too much to my daughter for her to understand that she didn't want, want to create differentials between men and women as far as pay. So, I mean, I understand that. I think the correct thing to do here is this, because as I said, We were at the table. We were at the table all night long, even though they never got back to us in the hopes that they would get back to us. All they have to do is name the time and the place, and we will go back to the negotiations table to keep on talking. And I think the students, what they need to do is call the state system and tell them to get back to the negotiations table 
And, you know, we at this Frank Brogan, the chancellor, and I were with the governor, and the governor told us, do everything you possibly can to settle this, right? Stay as long as you have to stay. And still, the state system of higher education left the table at 8.30 last night. They said, here's our final offer. Hey, Ken, we have, I, I'm going to be talking with Ken Marshall from the state system in a few minutes. Um, one final question. I know Ken will say, and Frank Brogan has said that, you know, the, and, and as you're well aware, that uh, the state system went through several years of not getting, in fact, had uh, reduced amounts of money from the state, and all, only some of that money has been restored, that the state system is dealing with a real budget crunch right now. I know we've worked very hard and we're in the Capitol building fighting for our students to get more money for the state system on a regular basis. We're part of that movement. But, I, you know, one of the things that we tried to do creatively when we heard them is to say, okay, while well, other bargaining units in the state were taking their pays in the earlier years, let's push ours back to the very end. So that will give you, Chancellor Brogan, a chance to actually go to the legislature and make the case that our system needs more money to operate properly. In fact, to even go beyond that to say there's wonderful things we can be doing if we are, in fact, properly funded. But I don't think it was about what he's saying that it was about, because what the attempt was, even after we did that, again, was to go after our adjunct faculty, was to go after our retirees. It was to go after people in a way that really seems like it was an attempt to uh, break up our union. And we're strong. And we're gonna sh we've already shown that we're strong. But our purpose is not to brag about that or to show strength. We want to go back to the table. We want to negotiate. So I hope that you will ask Ken Marshall that instead of being on shows like this and focusing on public relations, that perhaps the chancellor himself could come to the negotiations table work out a deal. Ken Mash is the president of the Association of Pennsylvania State College and University Faculties, or AFSCUF. Uh, Ken, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. If you're just tuning in, breaking news this morning, the state system of higher education, the, the 14 state-owned universities, the faculty and coaches at those state-owned universities went on strike at 5 a.m. this morning. Uh, just finished speaking with Ken Mash from the union. Now we're joined by Ken Marshall, who is the media relations manager for the Pennsylvania State System of Higher Education. Ken, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good morning, Scott. All right. This is unusual. I know that uh, <laughs> you were on hold while I'm speaking to, to Ken Mash, but uh, I'll ask you the broad question. How do you see this situation? Uh, it's a it's it's not a good situation. Obviously, our students are are, are the ones who are going to be suffering for this. Um, you know, we we tried very hard, uh, have been trying for months uh, to come to an agreement with AFSCUF. Uh, we've made what we believe to be you know very very fair offers, particularly given the uh, as you just mentioned uh, in your discussion with Dr. Mash, the severe fiscal challenges that are facing our universities. Um, you know, we're receiving the same amount of, of funding from the state that we did back in 1999. Uh, all but three of our universities uh, had declining enrollments this year. Uh, overall, the system has seen declining enrollments for six years in a row. Um, so, you know, we're, we're facing very, very difficult times. Despite that, uh, we have been trying very, very hard to provide raises to our faculty. 
our faculty are tremendous. Uh, you know, they're the reason our students succeed. Uh, you know, it, it, it seems at times when we're involved, in, I know collective bargaining is always difficult. Uh, it seems as if uh, ASCOF tries to present this picture that, it, it's, that we're, we're going after them, uh, that we're trying to punish them for some reason. Uh, that's, there's nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, you know, we want to make sure our faculty are well compensated, and they certainly are. Uh, our faculty rank among the top 10 to 15 percent nationally in, in overall salaries among universities, similar public universities of the, of, of, of the, the, the type that we are, regional institutions, mostly master's institutions. Um, you know, we're outstanding universities, and the reason we are is because of our faculty. Well, you heard Ken Mash say that uh, when you said that uh, that AFSCUF says that you're going after. I mean, I don't expect you to come right out and say this, but those accusa- that accusation he made that you're trying to break the union. How do you respond to that? Um, it's it, that's nothing could be again not true. Um, we're not trying to break the union. Uh, again, we want our faculty. We're proud of the fact that our faculty are well paid. We want them to continue to be well paid. That's why we've offered our faculty uh, raises ranging from seven and a quarter to seventeen and a quarter percent over three years. Um, I find, think you'd probably find it very hard uh, looking around uh, private industry or, or anywhere else where you're going to find those kind of increases um, over the, you know over that period of time. Now, what year? Um, what years are you talking about that those kind of raises were were offered? They're offered in our current proposal. In your current proposal, so yes. if this agreement was signed, it would be over for the next three years. From what did you say, seven to seventeen percent? Seven and a quarter to seventeen and a quarter percent is what our faculty would re- our permanent faculty would receive. All right, in, well, in then, raises. Then, in your mind, what's holding up an agreement? Um, I don't know. Uh, the, the faculty union has again; they've rejected that, and they've also they they have shown extreme resistance. Uh, to our desire to essentially provide them with the identical health insurance coverage, the identical health insurance package that our other employees get. Um, you know, we're, we're not asking, yes, they, are, they would have to pay more uh, in, in the, their share of the premium. They would, there would be new deductibles and co-insurance. Uh, but I'm pretty sure if you, you ask virtually anyone in America, um, has your health insurance gone up in the last five years? They're probably going to tell you either yes or what health insurance? Um, you know, yes, you know, through the uh, Affordable Care, or Care Act, there, you know, everybody is supposed to be covered and everybody has insurance. Um, but is, is in terms of employers-provided uh, health care coverage, I, I don't think you'll find a better, you know, you're not going to find a whole lot better package uh, of benefits um, than what the state system provides. And, that, and that's the, the package that we're trying to provide to, uh, to our faculty. It's the same package. Uh, that other employees in the system have been have had in, in place since January. That includes the chancellor, the university presidents, uh, our health center nurses. Uh, you know the, the nurses who take care of our students uh, if they get sick when they're away from home. Uh, our university, our campus police officers and security officers uh, who protect our students while they're away from home, uh, and, and a whole range of other employees who provide. Uh, you know, vital services to our students. They're all paying the exact same thing that we're asking 
uh, our faculty to pay. Now, there are the other issues, as you well know. Uh, as Ken Mash mentioned, uh, he, you know, some of the issues that uh, the union has uh, an issue with, a problem with, uh, that you would eliminate some part-time faculty f- positions, that uh, you would encourage students to go to online courses. Obviously, online courses, I don't know, maybe it's it, they don't take as much uh, in the way of uh, classroom instruction, um, faculty work as they do uh, if they were in a classroom, uh, cutting back on uh, development money. Um, what else? Uh, and he said he offered, they offered a, to agree to a package that would save the system $5 million. What about all those things? Well, let me, let me go one at a time on the, uh, the proposals involving temporary faculty. Initially, we had a proposal that would have required our full-time temporary faculty to teach one extra course a semester, five instead of four, in exchange for relieving them of some of the other responsibilities. We pulled that from the table. We had a proposal to increase the percentage of, of temporary faculty that our universities could hire uh, from 25, a cap of 25% to 30%. We pulled that off the table. Um, the distance education, we actually agreed on that. We have a tentative agreement on distance education. Uh, we work together. That's the way negotiations are supposed to be. Uh, we work together on that, and we have a tentative agreement on distance education language. What we're looking to do is to modernize the system, not to, uh, you know, certainly not to force anybody into taking online courses. And, and, and we also don't force any faculty member to teach an online course. There's language in the contract that says specifically that the teaching of online courses is voluntary on the part of the faculty member unless he or she is specifically hired for that purpose. The vast majority of our uh, faculty members were not hired to teach online courses. They don't have to teach online courses if they don't want to. It's right in the contract. We never propose changing that. Uh, so we, we, we pulled literally more than two dozen proposals off the table because ABSCOF objected to those, and we were eager to try to get a contract settlement. So we, we, pulled, out, we pulled many of the, the more uh, uh, contentious, uh, to them, uh, contentious proposals. We pulled, we pulled them from the table. We really are, are down primarily to the issue of salary and health insurance. Those are the two st- major stumbling blocks uh, to a settlement right now. All right, Ken, let me ask you this. The current situation at the, 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 on the campuses of the 14 state-owned universities, I know the plan was that you would open classes, that classes would be open if there were faculty who crossed the picket line and decided to teach. Uh, are there classes going on this morning? Um, uh- I honestly can't tell you what the situation is right now because we haven't gotten any we haven't gotten reports from the campuses yet. Uh, I mean, we, we're not going to know that until you know a couple of days into this um, because you know the way college campus or classes are held, you usually have classes Monday, Wednesday, Friday, uh, and the other or, or Tuesday and Thursday. So until we have a couple of days of experience and see, um, but I'm certain uh, I'm certain there are there are classes being taught. Uh, how many? I don't know. Uh, but, yes, it is our intent to keep the universities open to the greatest extent possible. Um, but, really, uh, the focus is, and I'll, I'll, I will agree with Dr. Mash on this, uh, we want to settle this as quickly as possible. Um, and when, when, when Dr. Mash says that, you know, we left at 8.30 last night, that's not true. We were there at 5 o'clock this morning, too. In fact, their team uh, delivered their uh, latest rejection of, our, of one of our proposals to us just before 5 o'clock this morning. We were there all night as well. Uh, and, and, and I don't want to get back and forth into that. I, I think it's fair to say that both of us, both sides, are very committed to getting this done. We want to get a, 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 uh, an agreement. Um, but, again, we have to realize 
uh, I mean, I hope that, that the uh, ABSCUF has said repeatedly that they understand the financial situation we're in. Um, and if that's the case, then it should help us uh, come to a settlement. Right, one final question, Ken. I'll ask you the same question that I did, Ken Mash, and that is what do you state, say to the students? There obviously are thousands of students across the state today who are nervous about what the future holds. Um, we are trying as hard as we can to get this settled. Uh, we will come to a settlement. We always do. Uh, it's unfortunate that it frequently comes to uh, comes to the brink, and this time we went over the brink. Um, you know, it, it, it is unfortunate, but I just want to uh, assure the, the students that we are working as hard as we can to get this done so that they can go back to worrying about the things they should be worrying about, you know, the next test, not whether or not their faculty member is going to or their professor is going to be in class. Ken Marshall is Media Relations Manager for the Pennsylvania State System of Higher Education. Ken, thank you very much for being with us today. Sure thing, anytime. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. WITF's listening area covers 18 counties in central Pennsylvania, stretching from Berks County in the east to Mifflin County in the west and just south of Williamsport to the Maryland line. Before 2011, the WITF news staff covered three, sometimes four, congressional races. Now there are seven congressional districts that reach into those 18 counties. It's an example of how the Republican-controlled legislature redrew the congressional maps. Of Pennsylvania's 18 districts, 13 are represented by Republicans. Some would call it gerrymandering the district boundaries, giving an electoral edge or advantage to the party in power. Now, I have to say that is not exclusive to Republicans either. If you go to states where there are Democratic majorities like California, New York, and Maryland, the same thing has happened and would happen and Democrats would no doubt take advantage of the majority if given the chance and they have in other states as I just mentioned. Our guest today says there's a better way. Joining us is former state Senator Franklin Curie. Senator Curie, welcome to the program. Thank you Scott, very glad to be here. And we are taking phone calls during this portion of the program. Great. I know that this is an issue that uh, is near and dear to a lot of our listeners out there, redistricting and how it has contributed to the divide, the political divide in this country, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. All right, Senator, we're going to talk about uh, the plan that uh, you're advocating here in just a moment, but for those who are not familiar with this this this. Um, issue. You know, I have to say that sometimes when you talk to uh, someone on the street, whether you would have this conversation with the person on the street about redistricting, redrawing congressional lines, their eyes may glaze over. It hasn't been the sexiest of issues, no. but it is an important issue. Give us a sense of why you feel that uh, some reform is needed. Okay. Well, it is a very uh, important issue. Let me explain, first of all, the timetable. Every 10 years, the United States government conducts a census of the population, and the House of Representatives has to be in conformity with those, with those population changes. So you have to have a redrawing of the congressional boundary lines after every census. And what happened last time in 2011, the Republican-controlled House and Governor and Senate did a redistricting which can only be confined, uh, which only can be described as gerrymandering at its at, at its most audacious. 
gerrymandering is when you you manipulate boundary lines so to ensure the safety of the seats for one party at the expense of the public. Now, you have the map in front of there. I know our public does not have maps because we're on radio, but when they get a chance, they can go to their website and they go to the browser and go to Pennsylvania Congressional District because you can see this map. Now, here's the way I look at it. If you had a football game in which the Steelers played the Eagles, and say the Eagles beat the Steelers. Which they did handily a few weeks yeah, ago. We, yeah, I saw that game. Yeah. And they did it. Well, suppose they set the rules so for the next game, the Steelers had to go 150 yards to get a touchdown, but the Eagles only had to go 50. People And that was done by the, by the winning team, not by the National Football League. People would scream. Well, that's exactly what happened here. The way these congressional seats are drawn, the Democrats basically have got to go 150 yards and Republicans only 50 to win these seats. Now, you talk about Dauphin County, uh, which is where, uh, where we are. Dauphin County is now divided into three congressional seats. We are here in WITF studios. We're in the 15th district. It starts at the Susquehanna River and goes all the way to the Delaware River. It's a very thin, narrow district. Uh, Harrisburg is in the 4th District, which is basically uh, Adams and York County. It's also part of Cumberland. And then the rest of Dauphin County, including and also most of Cumberland County, is in a district. The 11th District goes all the way to Wayne County above Scranton. Now, the only way you can rationalize those drawings is to give safety to the incumbents because there's no community of interest there. There's no central community, and I think it's gerrymandering at its worst. Now, so that's what's—and that's what's, I think people in Dauphin County and Cumberland are being shortchanged in their voice in Congress. Now, the rules say that these congressional districts have to have roughly the same population. Yes, and that's the only real criteria, and that's the problem. So what they do, the way they draft this, the main criteria is how do you get as many Republicans in one set of seats and a few Democrats in the other and let it go with that. They don't look at any other criteria as long as it meets the population. And with the use of computers, they can come up with these maps like the one we're looking at here, which is very, very, very disturbing. And the fact is in these safe seats, the congressmen, the incumbents don't have to pay much attention to the minority party because 14... Of the la in, in the last election, 2014, 14 of the 18 congressmen elected got more than 60% of the vote. Now, that is beyond—that's beyond safe. When Wolf beat Corbett, he only got 54% of the vote. The Corbett's uh, 48 or something. But when you get 60% or more, you know how safe it is. It can't get much safer than that. All right, and we're going to talk about, um, you know, how this this works politically and all that. But uh, we have had people, uh, you know, we, when we've talked about this issue before, we've had people who have said that, uh, you know, one of the reasons that uh, this country is so divided politically, that this is one of the contributing factors. There's no question about it, because you have so many seats that are so safe, they don't have to deal with Democrats or the other party. They don't have to negotiate. So that, that's why you see so many in Washington just are against Obama, no matter what he comes up with. They don't even want to vote on it. And that's because there are a lot of seats like this throughout the It's not just Pennsylvania, but other states like Texas and uh, some uh, Michigan, I think, and some other states 
Well, you got the same problem. People just don't want, they're so entrenched, all they do is get reelected and they don't care about dealing with the other party or trying to solve problems. Well, and again, I, to, to be fair, I will, as I pointed out in my introduction, in like New York and uh, Maryland, for example, it is the opposite. Uh, Democrats have a higher proportion of congressional seats than than Republicans. I'm just pointing that out because yeah. it, it it matters which party is in the majority. Now, I want to go back to your analogy, though, about the Eagles and, and the Steelers. You know, the difference, though, is that people are not voting on which team they want to be making the rules. In our system, people are. People are voting yeah. on, in, in this case, the, the way the system is set up now, who makes the rules for redrawing those congressional boundary lines, the state legislature. People are making decisions there when they go to the ballot box. So, you know, is this something they should be considering when who they vote for? I mean, I can't see someone saying, you know what, I'm going to vote for the opponent here because I don't like how the majority no. has drawn up these congressional lines. No, you're absolutely right, Scott. The key to this is the state House members and state senators who are elected November the 8th because they're the ones who have a chance next year to vote on two bills that will take this out of the hands of both parties and give it to a third party. Uh, to a commission, and that's Senate Bill 484, which is sponsored by Senator Lisa Boscola, and House Bill 1835, sponsored by Representative Dave Parker of Monroe County. One Republican, one oh, Democrat. Yes, and both of them are bipartisan. There, there were Republicans on, uh, on Senator Boscola's bill, Senator Brown's on, Senator Eichelberger, and in the case of Parker, he has about a dozen Republicans on it. Now, here's the reason you have to get, they have to vote on it next year. This is a constitutional amendment, and to take effect in time for the next census, it's got to pass in the next session, which would be the 27-2018 session, and then pass again in the 2019-2020 session, and then it will be in effect and we'll have a commission which will set up these districts and not either political party. So the timetable is crucial this year. And I'm urging people to talk to their House and Senate candidates on both parties, ask them how they feel about that, and urge them to get it out of the hands of both teams. All right, we have a question here. A gentleman who has to hang up quickly, so I'll get to him. Tim and Carlisle. Tim, you still there? Uh, yes, I'm still here. Thank you, Scott. Uh-huh. Um, actually, it sounds like my question has more or less been answered. Um, I, I was basically going to ask if there's any kind of push in Pennsylvania to have, like, an independent, an independent board or anything like that push for... Um, basically to, to take the, the, the districting out of partisan hands and put it into an independent committee. And it sounds like that's happening, which is fantastic. Well, um, oh, go ahead. No, what I was going to say is if there's legislation. doesn't mean it's happening, and that's what we're going to talk about next. Did you have a follow-up? Um, yeah, I'll follow up to that. Um, is there, I'm, I was actually kind of surprised to hear um, that there is a Republican pushing for this as well, because it kind of seems like they have a vested interest in not having – Basically, having the um, having the control within districting in their hands, because if it's set up independently, just due to the push to you know lots of people moving to cities, cities getting bigger, more Democrats in cities, and things like that, that the Democrats would naturally have an upper hand in an independent committee when it comes to districting later on. Mm -hmm. You know, is, 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 is that the case? Is there any kind of pushback to that? All right. Thank you very much for your call. Great. He anticipated several of my calls. Okay. But before we get to 
the politics of it and the chances of getting through the legislature. What are you proposing here? You know, talk a little bit more about this commission and how it would work. Well, I'm I'm urging people to support Senator Buskell and Representative Parker's bill, which should create an independent commission of 11 people, four Democrats, four Republicans, three independents. They would be selected by the Secretary of State and on a random basis. And people who want to participate would submit their qualifications, and if they're qualified, they'll be put into the selection process. Now, people cannot be on this commission who are in the legislature, legislative staff, or lobbyist people like that. And you have to have voted in the last consecutively for the last five years. So that is who would be in it. The Secretary of State would then pick them at random, and then they, this commission would draw up the boundary lines. Now, the bill also requires that the boundary lines be compact, they have a community of interest, and they do not favor incumbents, and they look at the area to be represented, not how the parties are to be split in it. So that, now to do this though, it takes a constitutional amendment, it's gotta pass next session, the following session, then be approved by the voters. Okay, now, uh, let's just go back to this because you're going to have people uh, that are going to say there's there's politics politics involved no matter how you do it. What I kind of compare this to is uh, uh, judicial, uh, you know, judges being appointed rather than being elected. That Secretary of State, uh, that Secretary of State is appointed by the governor. Right. What's to keep that Secretary of State from not having a partisan point of view when he's appointing these members? Well, first of all, he has to draw them by random from a from a pool. Okay. So the random should take care of that and. You know, look, you're never going to get this thing to squeeze dried totally out of politics, but this certainly minimizes it and gets it out in the public where they have to hold public hearings. One of the things about this bill is they got to hold public hearings about their plan. When the Republican legislature in 2010 or 2011 did this, there were no hearings at all. It was all done in secrets, and the Democrats had nothing to say about it. Now, so it was done in secret and it wasn't done properly. Now, I think both parties should be kept out of this to the extent possible. Let the third party, let the National Football League decide to roll for the competing teams, <laughs> not each team that wins. That's my view. You know, if we took that literally, we I don't know if we want the NFL office to make well, this rule. I know what you're saying. Well, I know. But, but I, I'm not endorsing what the National Football League does, but I mean, it's, it's, it's not much the point's the same. You need a third party, not the teams, deciding what the rules are going to be. We have an email here from Lee in York who says, in 2014, while Tom Wolf ran for governor and claimed a mandate because of his victory margin, in the same election, state Republicans increased their membership in the House and Senate, also in claim, claimed a mandate. What got lost in the noise was the fact that over the entire state, more voters cast ballots for Democratic House candidates than for Republican candidates. Part of that is because of where the population lies. Some mandate, it's a result of careful gerrymandering. Well, what that means is, though, that when the Republicans win the legislature and the governor gets uh, the Democrat, they've got to negotiate and work out their differences to run this state of Pennsylvania. And that's what they have to do. Uh, the problem we've had in Washington is there's been no real negotiation, even though you have a very heavily Republican House and a Democratic president. There's been no negotiation. It's just they don't talk to each other. That's too bad. It's, the public loses. 
We have another email here from Jim. It says, gerrymandering is perhaps the biggest threat to our democracy today. Look at the data. Real Clear Politics says that if there was a generic ballot for Congress, Americans would favor Democrats, favor Democrats by 4.9%. Yet the GOP has a large margin in the House, both nationwide and in Pennsylvania. There's only one reason for this, gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is wrong if practiced by either side, Republican or Democrat. Right. It allows politicians to choose their voters rather than the other way as our founders intended. I agree with that. And in fact, in 2014, if you total all the Republican candidates for Congress, they got 53% of the vote. But they got 73% of the Congress people from Pennsylvania. Now, that's a huge gap there. And it shows that it doesn't really represent public opinion. And he's right. If public opinion is not fully represented, then we lose as, a, uh, as voters. We're effectively disenfranchised by this heavy redistricting. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're discussing congressional redistricting reform with former state senator Franklin Curry. And by the way, uh, we were going to be speaking with Emily Previty of Keystone Crossroads uh, later in this program about uh, how difficult it is to remove public officials in Pennsylvania by recall. And uh, yes, it's tied to the West York mayor situation. Uh, but because we were on a little bit longer talking about uh, the faculty strike at the state-owned universities this morning, we're going to push that back and uh, talk with with uh, Emily and another time about it, because I think that would open some eyes as, as well as you know how difficult it is, how many, many limits we have here in Pennsylvania uh, when it comes to recall. Our guest today, Franklin Curie, uh, we're, we're talking about redistricting. If you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is one 800 7532 All right, Senator, something that one of the callers brought up, and that is the politics of it. I mean, the le as it stands now, the legislature would have to pass the bills that uh, you're talking about, uh, one introduced by a Republican in the House, one introduced by a Democrat in the Senate. Right. Why would the majority want to give up that power? Well, because it's the right thing to do. But when's that? Okay, <laughs> I hate to be cynical, but, but I know. But let, let me finish. And there are a lot of people on both sides of the of the aisle in the House and the Senate who want to make this change. The pressure comes from the leadership and the fact that there are large financial groups outside of Pennsylvania who want to keep things the way they are, so they will pour money into these legislative races and through the leadership to keep the thing the way it is. And that's what we're fighting against. It isn't. Uh, I'm convinced if you had this thing on the ballot and as a public referendum, as you have to do to get a constitutional amendment proved, it would pass overwhelmingly. Well, the problem is getting it to that means you got to get through the leadership of both houses, and that is where the fight's going to be. You know, as I was just talking about uh, Emily Previty coming on the program and talking about how difficult it is to recall an elected official in Pennsylvania on a local level, it's kind of the same thing in that it is difficult here in Pennsylvania when there's a constitutional amendment being proposed 
two consecutive votes right. in the legislature, right. and then a referendum. Right. Just for background purposes, a couple states that have made have gone to a commission for redistricting, California, which has an overwhelming Democratic majority, Arizona, which I assume has a large Republican majority, uh, but those two states have referendum. Right. They did and not have to go through the constitutional amendment route. That's exactly, and also Florida. And there Florida are three too. states that have it, Scott, and you're right. There, people can put things on the ballot through a referendum, and they don't need the legislature. Here, we don't have the referendum process, so it's got to go through the legislature. So what I'm hoping is a number of rank-and-file members of both parties will be elected November the 8th who will go to the leadership and say next year, we want to pass this. And uh, if the leadership sees it, they, they have strong support from the rank and file. I think leadership will yield to their membership. All right, you've been you were in the legislature a long time. No, I, I know it's different than, yeah. but you lobbied too, so you're very familiar yeah. with uh, yeah. with the leadership. But again, I, I keep I know it sounds cynical, but why would they do that? Why would in today's atmosphere? Why would the majority give up power? Well, they, they they don't want to, but we have to. But there are a number of people who realize that the power is not serving the public, and when it's not serving the public, it has to be changed. That's why people like Dave Parker and the others in both houses and both sides of the fence here have got to have enough support from their colleagues to say to the, uh, to their leadership, "We want this done, and we have the votes to do it." Then the leadership, I think, will yield. Mm -hmm. But short of that, the leadership's going to go along with. Uh, with what they get to pressure from the national parties. Senator, I'm not arguing with you. I'm just no, pointing no. out that, uh, you know, it's. I think a lot of people look at it, that that's what's realistic. Let me ask you this, and this is kind of off track, but, you know, we've had people, and ever since the pay raise in 2005, you don't hear about it as much anymore, oh. but people who have called for a constitutional convention. Is this an issue that could be handled in a constitutional convention? It could be, but you couldn't get it done in time for the next uh, right. so congressional redistricting. It would be 2030 before yeah. anything Yes, you done. have to recognize that the census is going to take place in 2020, regardless of what else happens, and the legislature itself has to pass the bill creating the new districts in time for the 2012 elections, which means it's got to be passed in 2011. But to get there, you got to get the constitutional amendment going now. You just don't have time for it. For a convention, this would be a good subject for that, but we don't have time, and it's it's just not going to happen that way. If it happens, it'll all be this way. All right, let's go to uh, the phones. Uh, Matthew is in Mechanicsburg. Matthew, you're on the air. Hi, um, I'd like to point out that the um, last gerrymandering was a result of an off-year election where Republicans tend to do better, and the next go-around will be an off-president or on-presidential year election where the uh, Democrats tend to do better, so the Democrats will have an opportunity to do a serious amount of gerrymandering and perhaps um, change the uh, the paradigm where um, more more Democratic voters are uh, um, voted for Democrats, and uh, but but more Republicans actually were voted in. So the opposite may happen um, coming 2022. Are you okay with that? I'm sorry? Are you okay with that? Um, no, I'm an independent. I believe we need a balance of power. Um, you know, every every side of, of um, every, you know, Republicans and the Democrats all have their bias. And, the, and, and reality is the correct area is somewhere in between. 
and having a little give and take as the, the Constitution was designed is a good idea. However, um, with the demographics changing to minorities, this may be the last gasp of the Republican Party. Um, by the time uh, 2030 comes around, when we'll have an off-presidential year election, I don't know what will be left of the Republican Party. Hey, Matthew, thank you very much for your call. Uh, Senator, let's let's talk about that a little bit, because we do know that, and I'm not necessarily going to you know, follow up on what he said about Democrats may be in the majority the next time, but that changing demographic, uh, our population across this country, I don't know about Pennsylvania so much, but it is changing across this country. What impact will that have on what the future of how the congressional lines are drawn up and representation goes. Well, in Pennsylvania, we'll probably lose more seats because you're going to find the Southwest, Texas, uh, Florida, Arizona, California getting more and more people, and the and the amount and the number of congressional seats is only 435. So if we lose population, our states gain fast, and we even if we don't lose, but they gain more, we might lose a seat or two. But that's why I think we should have the rules, or that is these boundary lines set by a third party, and then let the two teams fight it out. Mm-hmm. That would be far more, and the public would be far better served. How many congressional seats have we lost in the past uh, 20 years? Oh, I think we've lost at least seven or eight. I yeah, it, I mean, we yeah. used to be like number three in the country behind yeah. New York and California. Oh, yeah. and now I think we're five, something like that. And it's we're all based on population. Well, I know in the old days, Northumberland and Schuylkill County had one congressional district. You know, Dauphin County, pretty much a district. Up recently, it was Dauphin and Schuylkill County with Tim Holden. But all that's split up now through this gerrymandering. Mm. All right, let's take a call from Ed in Lancaster. Ed, you're on the air. Uh, thank you. Uh, I just wanted to comment that of all the aspects of American government, one of the most undemocratic as elements of the republic is this gerrymandering, which has been going on from the early 1800s. And uh, something has to be done. I'm not sure that it's necessarily a change in the state constitutions, perhaps in a, uh, a constitutional amendment uh, nationally, where all states would be required to abide by what the senator has suggested, an independent body, much like the Electoral College, would be responsible for uh, for redistricting uh, after the uh, census has been taken. Uh, I'll sit back and take a listen right. to what you have to say. All right. but Thank you very I much. I'd like to hear. Okay. Thank you very much for your call. What about this being handled by the federal government? Well, first of all, the way the, the the constitutional system is set up now, elections are run in each state, and it says that the states shall select their own congressional delegations. So it's up to each state to do it. Now, if you go to the federal level, I don't think anything's going to happen unless you. Because the Republicans have overwhelmingly controlled the House, it just isn't going to go anywhere. And it isn't going to go anywhere in time for the 2020 election, the 2020 census. The only way it's going to happen, if it happens, is if we pass Boscola's 484 and Parker's 1835 and get it going next year and the year after, then there'll be something in place. That's the only way I see to get something done. Otherwise, you've got to wait till 2030. Plus, uh, something else uh, when, when you're talking about, uh, and this is really political philosophy, 
there are a lot of people, the states themselves probably would fight that. Uh, plus, yeah. you're going to have a lot of people say, well, you're just making the federal government bigger and giving right. the central government more power. We have Barry Kaufman from Common Cause on, on the line now. Barry, I wondered if you'd give us a call today. Well, thanks for taking my call, Scott. Um, <laughs> this is an issue the Common Cause has been working working on for some time. Yeah, we've been working this for uh, over three decades now, and you know we're we're finally happy to see that the public finally gets it. They understand why we don't have good discourse in government. They understand why there's no government accountability when you have you know in many cases more than half the incumbents running without opposition. There's no accountability anymore. And that lack of opposition is caused by gerrymandering. So um, Common Cause and Fair Districts PA have uh, challenged every person running for the legislature this year to sign a pledge saying they will support the kind of bills uh, Senator Curry is talking about. And if they want to get a copy of that petition, they can go to www.fairdistrictspa.com, get a copy of the petition and pledge and um, help join the campaign. Barry, thank you very much. You know, one quick question, because I, I, I'm, I'm limited on time, Barry. When you say that you've been working on this issue for 30 years, and as Senator Curry has pointed out, um, you know, there there is some urgency to this. You know, that, that could make uh, a lot of people listening to this uh, kind of pessimistic. You've been working on it for 30 years, but yet nothing has happened. Well, a lot of, a lot of major government reforms take a long time to achieve before public gets behind and the public is now getting behind this they understand consequences of not fixing this system um, so uh, Senator Curry is right if we want the new system in place for 2021 redistricting we have to do it in the next two sessions Barry thank you very much for giving us a call today yep you're welcome we only have a couple minutes left and I'm not gonna have time to get to the other phone calls but I will bring up a couple other points David in Harrisburg suggests using a computer program to redistrict. This actually was done by uh, just a regular person, a woman in eastern Pennsylvania. And uh, the court originally said, yeah, that, you know, that makes more sense than what the legislature came up with. Another uh, another phone caller, Jake from Lebanon, said that uh, understands that this is uh, linked to the disenfranchised movement that keeps underprivileged and minorities away from the polls. Um, your your thoughts on that? Well, it does keep anybody who's not in the majority party in those districts from really not being counted or being looked to by the congressman for any real input. They don't care. They don't because they're not worried about a Democrat or a, somebody else challenging them in the general election. They're worried about the primary somebody to their right. So it does disenfranchise a lot of people. And that's what has me concerned. But I just want to reemphasize what Mary Kaufman just said. The time to act is now. You've got to get people behind these two bills. I'll have different numbers next year, but get the legislators now to commit to doing something for the next two sessions so that we have a third party in charge of the redistricting in 20. Uh, uh, it'll be 2020 and uh, 2021. Yeah. And, you know, I think that many of our listeners who may only pay attention around election time are finding out that their districts are, you know, when you mentioned the 15th district that we're in, um, we had Charlie Dent, the incumbent yeah. the other day, whose district runs from the 
Delaware River to the Susquehanna right. River. And uh, is, so you have to check to find out where you are, actually where you're voting. Uh, former Senator Franklin Curry, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Delighted to do it. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, speaking of congressional districts, we're going to be talking with uh, Christina Harpin, who is the Democrat running for Congress in the 16th Congressional District, and that's in Lancaster, Chester, and Berks counties.